derailed? What do you do when your life jumps the tracks? I mean, aside from eating an entire bag of kettle chips and binge-watching Netflix, which is kind of my go-to thing. So we're at this halfway series on this topic, and we're actually at a turning point today. A turning point because this is the place in the grief journey where many people get stuck. And we're going to explore that in just a minute. Um, If you've been with us the last few weeks, you've heard some really great teachings, the first three teachings, and many, many people have been touched by them. And I want to reiterate before I dig into this next stage what we've said so far, and that is that this is not a linear journey. This is not a one-size-fits-all thing. This is not some kind of prescription that you have to follow We all go through this journey differently, through the phases differently. There's no right way to do this. As I thought about it this morning, I thought there's no grading system for grief. There's no grading system. So I hope you've been able to hear these first three teachings. And if you haven't, they're all online now. Jeff came and talked about shock, that initial feeling that hits us when we face crisis or death or loss. And we groan. And we cry out to God, and we need others to reach out to us and help us. And if you remember, Jeff said, the greater the pain, the fewer the words. There's a lot of wisdom in that sentence. And then Dave came and talked about sorrow. He talked about grief and how it must be gone through and not around. And how, though grieving is painful, it's necessary, it's normal. And we need to, some of us grieve the losses in our lives. We've never grieved. We need to lament, which is to complain to God, to bring our sorrow to God, not to complain about him. And then we need to ask Jesus to heal our broken heart. And Kurt was here last week talking about struggle. This is that place where we ask the hard questions. And many of them we will learn we won't have answers for on this side of eternity. And we want to, as a church, say that it is okay to ask questions. It is okay to struggle. God made us in kind of this unique way so that we can struggle with him. It's part of our growth. And before I start on today's teaching, which is going to be on surrender, I want to just say one thing. And that is that depression can either be one of the things in life that derails us, or it can be one of the outcomes of a derailment. I know this because I've experienced it myself. And we as a church want to just say very clearly that just like medication that human beings take for diabetes or blood pressure issues or headaches, antidepressants can also be a gift from God. The God who created great medical minds and is the source behind all great medical breakthroughs. And so if you're here this morning and you're on medication for your brain's health, you are not alone. It does not mean that you lack faith. It simply means you're human, just like the rest of us. So if you've been struggling in your life with what feels like depression and you have thought to yourself or been told by someone else, I can't go to the doctor for this. I should just be able to pray myself better. May I humbly say to you that, of course, God can heal you. But he may choose to do so through medical treatment. So if you're struggling, I urge you to go to your doctor. 
and know that it's okay to be treated medically for depression just like any other illness. So I want to talk this morning about surrender. And I want to start by saying that the greatest delusion in my life, and I bet in your life, is the belief that we are in control. In fact, my belief got once again shattered early this this week, Monday night. I mean, I had really set up my week. I had the menus planned. I had my workouts planned. My house was clean. I was bringing my A game. I was going to nail this week to the wall. Monday night, get a call from Iowa City. My oldest daughter is headed to the ER. And so I drove down there in the rain at 9.30 at night, which is, if you know me, my bedtime. And uh, spent the, la- the next 72 hours back and forth to Iowa City, in and out of the ER several times, etc., etc., until all of a sudden it was Friday. And there I sat on my couch in my robe with my hair sticking straight up like, what the heck just happened? But we all trick ourselves into thinking, if I just eat right, I won't have a heart attack. If I work hard, I won't get fired. If I wear my seatbelt, I won't get in a car crash. If I come to church a lot, God won't let bad things happen to me. And then when pain or disappointment blow into my carefully ordered life, this illusion of control that keeps me sane in a dangerous world is blown apart, and I am stopped dead in my tracks. Or perhaps I should say I am derailed. And after I eat a bag of kettle chips, and I mean a family-sized bag of kettle chips, not those little 100-calorie packs. I got a little 100-calorie pack of almonds the other day. There were five almonds in it. Like, why did I even buy this? But once I get derailed, I, I, I fight against this delusion that I thought was correct. How could I have been wrong? How could these things have happened to me? I did all the right things, and I rail against God I thought we had a deal, God, and I try to keep gaining my control of my life back, but once that myth of control is shattered, it's really hard to put back together again. And so when that happens, I have two options. I can live in shock, sorrow, and struggle, just cycling around in that circle of phases Or I can get stalled out, you know, at that struggle phase, like Kurt described last week in his teaching. I get stuck because I don't want to go through that narrow place. And I'm fearful of going through into the next place of my journey. And so I spend my life wrestling and at war with God for the rest of my life. Always asking him, what if, and how come, and why me, and where were you, God, and where are you now? I can live that way, and lots of people do, or I can surrender. And that is what I want to talk about this morning, surrendering to God, waving the white flag, giving up the myth, the fairy tale, and choosing to end my battle with God over who is in charge of my life. And I just want you to know I am the world's worst surrenderer of all time. You can just come up and ask my husband after this teaching is done. I will stubbornly be unsurrendered over the stupidest of things, like who ate the last bag of kettle chips in our house. I blame Stella the dog, Chuck blames me, and I will not yield. So you are learning this morning from a mere kindergartner in the school of surrender. 
And, and I want you to understand this. These first three stages, shock, sorrow, and struggle, these are things that are very often forced upon us. But surrender is a choice. God always leaves us with a choice. And so I want to talk this morning about what surrender looks like. And I just have three things to describe, and each one comes with a question and a prayer. So I encourage you to write these down in your bulletin. The first thing that we need to do to surrender is to name and accept what is over, what cannot be changed. We need to name and accept what is over. And there's this great example from the life of King David in the Old Testament. King David was a man after God's own heart, which I love because he really messed up a lot in his life. So I figure that's good news, right? You can be a person after God's own heart, and somehow that doesn't mean you have to be perfect. And there's a story in 2 Samuel. David, if you know the story of King David at all, had an affair with another man's wife named Bathsheba. And she became pregnant with David's baby, and that baby died. And the baby died after David prayed and prayed and fasted and begged God to save the child. The child died. Does anybody here know how that feels? To pray and pray and pray. And what you prayed for doesn't happen. So we pick up David in this story after the baby's dead. And his counselors, his friends are talking to him and they're asking him, why is he now getting up and eating? Didn't the baby just die? And this is what David said. David answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? David was naming something that was over. He was in the process of accepting that something or someone, his precious baby, was gone. You see, it is one thing to name what is over, even to grieve what is over, like Dave talked about, but to accept it? To accept that someone or something we loved is gone? To accept that a dream is over? To accept that my hope for the future is shattered? See, this is where real surrender starts. And so my question for you this morning is, what do you need or what do I need to accept is over in my life? Is it a marriage? A dream? A business? A person that I loved? A relationship? The dream that you can fit into your jeans from high school because you ate all the kettle chips. (laughs) Your health. Your parents' marriage. The prayer is, 
God, help me to be brave enough to name and accept what is over and to face the hard truth that I can't bring back what is gone. I'm not going to lie. This is really, really hard. And a lot of us never do it. And we live in the past. We live in denial. Kind of like Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite, if you remember him. (coughs) Sorry. I'm all choked up about Uncle Rico. His whole life talking about what a great high school football star he was. We need to name and accept what is over. And once we've identified what is over, the second step is to let it go. See, identifying it, accepting it is one thing, but to lay it down is another. Laying it down and letting it go, especially if it was a person, does not mean that we don't care, does not mean that we still don't love what is lost. It just means we know it is time for us to let it go. And this is where we stop dwelling in the past and living with the what-ifs and the why-nots and the if-onlys and it could-have-beens. And there is great potential for sadness here. And as Dave said in his teaching on sorrow, it is okay to be sad. And though this is a church filled with men teachers who cry a lot, uh, I just want to continue to give men permission To cry and to be sad, it is okay. And the question for this phase is what is the new reality God is asking me to live in now? What is my new reality now that I'm letting go of what is lost? And my prayer for this stage is so important. It is God, help me to actually live in this new reality, even though I may not want to be in it. Psalm 118, in one of my favorite Bible translations, verse 24 says this, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. See, to to surrender to God in a time of loss and grief is to recognize and believe that the past is past and the future is not yet promised to me. And all I have, all you have, all any of us have is this day, right here, this moment. And it is a gift from God. And even though we have had to do the hard work of leaving something behind, we can still, with God's help, find little ways to rejoice in it. Find tiny moments of gladness. Despite the ache in our heart and the hole in our soul or the empty chair at the table or the bank account that's empty or the marriage vows that are shredded or the fresh dirt on the grave... This is the day right now that the Lord has made and to live in it, to actually live in it. We have to surrender to our new reality. So we name and we accept what is over. 
we let it go and live in our new reality. And you know what? For some of us, this may take years. It's okay. For some of us, we may have to do it over and over and over again. That's okay too. But we don't stop here. Christians never stop here. Here's the third part of surrender. We need to remember that this derailing moment, whatever it is for you, this grief, this loss, this sorrow, is not the end of the story. It does not get the final word. There's this beautiful promise that God gives to his people from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61 of Isaiah. And God's people are in a place of derailment. They're in what the Bible calls exile. They're under the captivity of a foreign government. And God comes to them through the prophet Isaiah and he says these words. He makes this promise. He says to them, I want to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And I believe that the same God who made that promise to his derailed people back then makes the same promise to his people today in our time of being sad and filled with sorrow and suffering. In our time of surrender to him, he says, if you just come to me and give it all to me, I will bestow on you a crown of beauty instead of ashes. I will one day dress you in new clothes, clothes of joy and clothes of praise. And Dave will talk more about this next week. But the question in this section is what good might God bring from this circumstance? How might God bring something good out of something that is so bad? And our prayer is, God, help me to hang on to hope. Help me to hang on to your hope. As I surrender my life to you, will you teach me to hope in you and to watch for you and to remember that this moment, this sadness is not the end of the story. When Chuck and I were in our early 20s, and we were out in Pasadena, California, Chuck was finishing seminary, and I was working and taking care of our two little girls. We had to move home to Waterloo, and, and we had to move home because I was depressed. We didn't move back because we wanted to be near family. We didn't move back because I wanted to buy an old house. We didn't move back so I could work at Orchard. We moved back because I was depressed and could not make it. And listen, this was not a kettle chip eating kind of derailment at this point. This was a complete and utter train wreck. And once we surrendered to that fact, we had to accept this idea that living in Southern California or living somewhere else across the country or whatever our dream was at that moment was over. And the new reality was I was depressed and non-functional and we had to get back here where we could get some help. And for almost a decade... I had no idea that some of the best things in our lives would eventually happen to us because we were forced to move back here. We had no idea 
that Chuck would find the work he loves and start to thrive. I had no idea that learning and developing and growing into my giftedness and landing in a church that would allow me to use it for the good of God's people and the good of my own soul would happen. I had zero thoughts of those things. I had zero belief even that God could bring something good out of my depression, that God would use my time of derailment eventually to help me heal and reach out to other people and lead me to my life's calling. Zero idea. And I'm telling you the truth that if some really nice chirpy Christian person had come to me in the middle of that depression, barely able to function and smiled real cheesy into my face and said to me, I wonder what good God might bring out of this tragedy. I would have either punched them in the mouth or simply walked away and never spoken to them again. See, we Christians tend to over-spiritualize things sometimes when we don't know what to say and then to push, push, push our timing on people because we're uncomfortable with hard feelings, because we don't trust God's timing, and we don't know what to do with people who get derailed and won't pretend that they aren't. So let me just say this as clearly as I can this morning. Do not push this question. What good might God bring out of this? Do not push this question on people who are in the middle of shock, sorrow, or struggle. In fact, do not push this question on anybody. This is God's question to ask people. Only God. The beauty that that I now experience in my life flowed out of our surrender to our ash-filled reality 20 years ago. And that reality was that I, a woman who had gone to a seminary to get my degree in counseling psychology, who had a husband who had graduated from seminary. I mean, we had all the Christian things. I was clinically depressed and could do nothing with my two little babies and my confused young husband, but crawl back home and move in with my parents. It was not a pretty story. But God brings beauty out of ashes. And God brings joy out of mourning. God brings praise out of despair. God brings resurrection out of crucifixion. God brings Easter out of Good Friday. And he does it sometimes in this life so that we can see it. But he also does it sometimes in ways or in, in circumstances that we'll never get to see on this side of eternity. Read chapters, Hebrew chapters 11 if you don't believe that. So I don't know where you are on this journey. Shock, sorrow, struggle, or maybe you're, you're headed that way but you don't know it yet or you're walking with somebody going through these things. But whatever your new reality is, Watch for God to bring good things out of it eventually and understand that that hinges, this whole ability to move through this thing hinges upon our unwillingness to say to God something like what Jesus said when he died on the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
or what he said when he prayed in the garden before he was arrested. Father, not my will, but yours. Or as he taught his disciples to pray, Father, may your will be done on earth in my life as it is in heaven. This is the language of surrender. This is the deep, deep language of trust in God's overarching goodness, even in the face of tragedy. And out of surrender and sorrow and suffering and shock and struggle, God promises whether on this earth or in the new heavens and the new earth, beauty from ashes. I know it because I've lived it. And so has Doug Oberman, a longtime leader in our congregation who died last week after living for over 60 years with polio. And we as a church believe that sometimes... God orchestrates circumstances circumstances to help teach his people critical truths. And this is one of those moments. Doug died in peace last Sunday, and he leaves us with this picture that we're about to watch of a life derailed by tragedy at age eight, eventually surrendered to God and lived fully for God's service. And there are almost no words to describe the beautiful thing that God made out of Doug's life. And I know he would hate it that we are showcasing him this morning. He was that kind of humble. In fact, he'd probably take me outside and give me a talking to. But he would love it that through him, God's goodness is being showcased. So watch this video. We used it about three years ago for a series we did on God's faithfulness, but it is oh so perfect for this moment right now. Uh, Doug, when I uh, think about the series we're in, The Faithfulness of God, uh, right away to me, you're one of the poster children in our congregation that demonstrates the faithfulness of God. And uh, I think we have people who don't know your story, so let's cover your story just a minute. Uh, Age eight, you contracted polio, and you were telling me just now two kinds of polio. Right, two different viruses. Uh, They're three at one time polio was really bad. There's three different viruses that cause different types of polio. And I caught two of them at the same time. Yep. yep. And then you were, uh, you went to the hospital and the first thing uh, the n- nurses and doctors told your parents were you probably wasn't, weren't going to live 24 hours. That's right. Yep. And then uh, you got through that and they put you in what's known as an iron lung. Yes. And really since that time when you were eight years old, you've been sleeping in an iron lung. Continually, and in the beginning, you lived in an iron lung. Yes. When I first had polio, the first three months I was in an iron lung, 24 hours a day. Yeah. And then uh, they had an orderly and a nurse that challenged me to try to stay out for a few minutes longer. And from there, that was an hour. They challenged me that I couldn't stay out all day. Then did that, but it took me about six months before I was able to bail the lung for like eight hours. Wow. So you are 100% paralyzed from your neck to your waist. Yes. 
and therefore you've not had the use of your arms. No. And then you're 60% paralyzed in one of your legs. Yes. And so this has forced you to learn a technique that you lovingly call uh, a frog breathing. Yes. Say yes. a word about that. Well, it's technically what I call esophageal breathing, but it's frog breathing because I, I go pair. My, uh, all my chest muscles are paralyzed and half my diaphragm is paralyzed. So that limits the amount of air that I can take in at one time without frog breathing. So I can go up air. That's why it looks funny when I talk and when I, when I talk, I don't speak continually. You know, smooth flow. I have to stop every so often. I'm doing that, that type of thing. Yeah. I can pull air into my lungs. Yep, so you're doing that right now. Yes. You're pulling air into your lungs because they don't breathe on their own. Right. Okay. Uh, polio is a disease that's being eradicated, and you've been a voice for that. I have. Uh, can you say I've, about talk about that? Um, the member of a club called Rotary. Then Rotary's goal for the last 25 years is the worldwide elimination of polio. But we raise funds to buy vaccine, and then Rotarians throughout the world help distribute that through uh, the clubs and through work with government agencies throughout the world. We've taken the number down to three countries now where polio is still wild. Nigeria, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. But it's close to being eliminated. Close to being eliminated. And you've traveled across the world at times to be a spokesman for this eradication yes. of polio. I've spoken at the meetings in Canada and the biggest one I went to was the Rotary International Convention in Barcelona, Spain, in 2002. Okay. I spoke. Okay. So even though you've had polio and been paralyzed since age eight, unable to use your arms, uh, you feel like God has really blessed you and been faithful to you. Yes, I do because I don't think you're, you define yourself by what you can't do. You're defined by what's inside of you and how God has helped you in your life. Yeah. As we've talked to Doug, you've said that God's faithfulness doesn't always come in the way you expect it to come. Right. Talk about that. You know, we're all sinful people. And because of that, we think things should go the way we want them to go. But I admit, I'd like to be able to use my arms. But I like to walk, be able to walk. But I like to be able to iron lung. But those aren't available to me. But God is still giving me a good life. He's taken me through struggles. He's put me in places where I've been able to travel, earn a living, have good health care. Uh, easy compared to people around the world. So God's been faithful to me. Yep. 69 years old, so you know in your future is heaven. Yes. Uh, when you think of heaven, what do, you, what do you think about, Doug? I think about being in the presence of God, been praising Him. I know it says that we'll have new bodies. I've thought about that a lot. My body's not the body I would want, but I'm not sure from a physical viewpoint that I'll look different. Because I'll look different, call it my family, recognize me. 
probably not recognize them. I think it'll be imperishable. They will be perfect, but it may still look the same. I think I may be able to use my arms, yeah. or dance. I think, maybe more importantly, while I'm here on earth, I try to praise God, try and worship Him. But I'm not very good at it, probably. But I think when we get to heaven, we'll be perfect. We'll be a perfect praise of God. Yeah. I hope you can sense that Doug's life was a perfect demonstration of this truth. To surrender to God. To give up the battle for our own control. And to stop raging against God because our life did not go exactly the way we hoped it would go. To wave the white flag of surrender is paradoxically and counterintuitively not to lose, but to win. When we surrender to God, we don't lose anything and we gain everything. We gain it all. Let's pray. God, it is, it is sin at its very core that makes us want to be in control of our own life and that makes us think our life should go perfectly and if it doesn't, to rail at you. And yet you also understand how agonizing it is when a human life gets derailed and you love us so much and you walk us through it in your timing and you wait for us you're patient with us when we get stuck and when we struggle and you also hold open your arms and wait for us to just surrender to you to stop the battle to accept what's gone to accept our new reality and to watch for you patiently to bring beauty out of ashes help us do that this morning